0: Oh, and thanks for tuning in to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. Breast Cancer Action is not your average breast cancer organization, and this is not your average podcast. We're people-powered and we're fiercely independent, radical and compassionate. We never shy away from the hard truths. We bring you the facts and we tell it like it is about breast cancer and what you can do about it. Hi, welcome to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. I'm
1: Karina Jagger, and I'm your host. Hundreds of thousands of people currently have breast implants for reconstruction, after mastectomies, for breast augmentation, and for gender transitions. In total, it's estimated around 400,000 people each year get breast implants, and about a quarter of those surgeries are related to breast cancer. But new information is emerging about the seriousness and pervasiveness of the risks associated with this common medical device. So today we're talking about breast implants, and joining me is Diana Zuckerman, the very knowledgeable president of the National Center for Health Research, which works to improve policies and programs that affect the health and safety of adults and children, and Raylene Holra, who is diagnosed with a rare lymphoma caused by the textured implants used in her reconstruction after breast cancer. I've had the honor of working with Diana and Raylene on a breast implant working group. Together, we provided the FDA with proposed language for a black box warning and a 10 point informed consent checklist, which we'll say more about towards the end of this podcast. We've got a lot to talk about, so let's get started. Diana and Raylene, thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to
2: start with you, Diana. So tell us how you first got interested in breast implants. Huh. Well, I was working in the House of Representatives. I was working for a congressional committee that oversees all of the Department of Health and Human Services, all health programs and uh, all health agencies in the federal government. And I actually knew nothing about FDA at the time. Um, and I was doing some investigations, which was what we mostly did. And I was doing some uh, pertaining to NIH. And I got a call from a woman uh, who was working in briefly in the Senate, it was, I think she was an intern in the Senate, and said she had heard about my work, and her mother had some terrible experience with breast implants, and would I please talk to her mother? And her mother was Sybil Goldrich, and um, I you know, thought I was doing a favor to this nice young woman in the Senate. So I talked to her mother, and uh, Sybil had actually already written an article in Ms. Magazine that I had read, but I didn't remember her name. And the magazine was about her terrible experience with breast implants, how she was a breast cancer survivor, had gotten breast implants. And uh, at some point soon thereafter, she started having silicone leaking from her nipples. And she told me what had happened to her. And I said, okay, but, you know, how often does this happen? Is this just a freaky accident that happened to you? You know, what does the research show? And she said, there is no research. And I, I thought she was wrong. You know, I thought that couldn't be. I said, well, you know, for some medical product to be approved by the FDA. It has to be tested in clinical trials to prove that it's safe and prove that it's effective. And she said, well, that has never happened with breast implants. And I I really thought she was wrong. And I... I told her I thought she was wrong, but I did uh, check it out. You know, we contacted the FDA and asked for all of their studies on breast implants. And that's when we found out that there were no studies on women uh, with breast implants, and that Sybil was absolutely right. Right. And and what year was that? That was in 1990. And what have you learned since then?
1: Um, so Sybil came to you and you were thinking maybe this is just a freak, um, you know, terrible accident. And it turns out it wasn't. It turns out there were lots of women that have been harmed by their breast implants.
2: Right. So at first, I mean, we put I put together a, a congressional hearing and it was an investigative hearing and we had Sybil testify. We also had Um, a breast cancer survivor who was very happy with her breast implants, and she also testified. And we had some scientists who were doing some research in the field, and there was somebody from Johns Hopkins who was a dean there who actually had been on the FDA advisory committee pertaining to breast implants. So we had these experts speaking, and what's really amazing is that in 1990, we had these experts speaking, and everything that they raised are still questions to be answered today you know they were saying it seems that you know the body has this reaction to this foreign body this breast implant and you know we can see these uh, microphages are called and we could see that the body is reacting to it and that can cause any number of health problems but we're not exactly sure how often it happens and we're not sure if it happens to everyone you know so there were asking all the right questions and expressing their concern, but saying, you know, there's just not enough research to know exactly what's going on. And here we are. Nearly 30 years. Yeah, almost 30 years later, and um, and we're still almost in the same place. There's a lot more research now, certainly a lot of research on women, but the research is, has been so badly done and so biased in most cases that we still know relatively little about how often this happens. Does it happen to all women? Does it only happen to some women? And of course, now we also know about ALCL, um, anaplastic large cell lymphoma, and we know that it is caused by breast implants, which we certainly had uh, not an inkling in 1990. Um, So we've learned some things. But there's still a lot of unanswered questions.
1: Well, this is a great time to turn to someone who's been diagnosed with BIA, ALCL, and tell us what happened to her. So Raylene, it's wonderful to have you with us on the podcast today. And I thought we could begin with you just telling your story about when you got implants and how you came to that decision.
3: Thank you so much for letting me come on and share my story. So breast implants was something I never thought would be a deciding factor in my life until I was the age of 33 and I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Initially, I chose to do a bilateral mastectomy without immediate reconstruction and I was followed by chemotherapy and several surgeries because afterwards I found out I was BRCA positive. And about a year and a half went by and I was really struggling with not feeling like a woman anymore. My husband would look at me all the time and say, Raylene, the only thing I see missing is cancer. But I truly felt like something was missing making me feel like a woman. So I chose to consult with a plastic surgeon and I went to the first one and he didn't answer a lot of my questions. I just didn't feel comfortable. It took three different plastic surgeons and I went in, I asked a lot of questions. I looked at the different implants. We talked about the different options and I felt like my decision was the best for me at the time. I wanted to look very natural looking. I chose an atomical, which was a um, triangular shape implant. It was also textured, which meant there would be less movement around in my chest wall. And it was FDA approved. And I felt like it was a safe decision to make me feel like a woman again and choose implants. My issue was though, what I chose to reconstruct my chest caused my second cancer. I was diagnosed with anaplastic large cell lymphoma at the age of 40.
1: So how did you find out you had ALCL? What were your symptoms and and what what was that like?
3: So it was six years ago when I was diagnosed and I had never heard of it. I didn't even know that type of cancer even existed. And I had been going to my oncologist every three months for my follow-up care. I had been getting my tumor markers checked, and I felt good. But a couple weeks before my 40th birthday, my husband threw me a surprise birthday party. And it's hard to surprise me because I'm, you know, involved in everything. But he pulled it off, and he was taking me out to a nice dinner. I had a summer dress on, and we noticed my chest wall was on my right side was a little bigger than the other side. And we, we joked about it actually that night. He, he looked at me and I had already noticed it, asked him about it. And what happened was we went for the surprise party. 250 of my closest family and friends surprised me. And the next day we got home and we noticed it getting larger. And in the course of four days, it tripled in size. So I immediately went to my oncologist thinking that it had you know, inflammatory breast cancer or something to do with my breast cancer. And I was really, really concerned after everything I had been through and I had multiple doctors looking at me, never seeing anything like it. It was painful because it was so filled with fluid. So she suggested me going back to my plastic surgeon because when they did the MRI, it looked like it was a lot of fluid pressing on my implant and possibly an issue with my implant. And when I went to my plastic surgeon's office, he was on vacation for two weeks and they took off 600 cc's of fluid. I mean, it, there was a lot of fluid. So one of the, the main symptoms of ALCL is late onset swelling. So when he did get back in in two weeks, he immediately tested for it. And I'm thankful for that because when I was diagnosed, I was case number 25 in the United States, 61 in the world. I'm thankful for my doctor reading about it, knowing a little bit about it, and testing for it correctly. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting on this call today.
1: Yeah, you were really, it's, it, I often feel this way with cancer. You can be really lucky within the profound unluck of having cancer. Oh, that's so true. By sharing your story, you have educated countless women about the risks of BIA LCL, and you've also heard from you know, dozens and dozens of women who have been diagnosed and who, who've often had a harder time um, getting diagnosed
3: than you did. What have you learned as a community and, and what do you want to see now? So, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, there was a whole community waiting for me. There's a lot of women, unfortunately, that are diagnosed with breast cancer, but it was just the opposite when I was diagnosed with BIA ALCL. I found one other person that I could talk to, and when I was going to MD Anderson, Dr. Mark Clements was my plastic surgeon, and he was amazing, and he was kind of at the frontier of this big fight and this big discovery and this emerging cancer, and I, I told him how lonely I felt, and I was already advocating for my health, but I felt like I needed to advocate for this disease that we didn't know a lot about. But Dr. Clemens said there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be affected by this. And I came home and I started a small website. And within the first two years, it was very slow. But one of my first phone calls I got from my website was from a lady by the name of Terry McGregor from Canada. And even when I say her name, she's still alive and she's doing so well. But my first conversation with her was, her whole story, and she was stage four, and they've given her three to six months to live. And she just wanted to talk to another survivor. and she wanted to thank me for putting my story out there so she didn't feel alone. And during that conversation, we talked about our treatment and I talked about MD Anderson and how they had a brand new chemotherapy regimen for BIAALCL. We got her connected with Dr. Clemens. And we're four years later and Terry's still alive. And that point right there, I knew that what I was doing was important and was much more beyond my story. It was about changing the path of this horrible disease that we feel guilty because we chose implants. Therefore, we feel like we chose this cancer. And the other person that, that changed my path was Jamie Cook out of Dallas, Texas. She's a huge advocate. A lot of people know her, and she advocates for breast implant illness. And Jamie and I were two of the three people that went to the FDA for the first time talking about this disease, asking for certain things to get done, and we went to the FDA. We've been there all four times, and we're doing a lot of traveling together to continue to advocate about not only my breast cancer and the decisions I made after that, which led to my BIA ALCL diagnosis.
1: Yeah, well, it's just such a powerful story. And I think um, we all are incredibly grateful to you for your advocacy and for turning your personal experience into a call for action at FDA. Let's turn back now to Diana to talk more about the regulatory side and the science behind breast implants we do have some more data, right? And so we do know about this um, breast implant-associated anaplastic large cell lymphoma. How has the information come forward given you've said, you know, manufacturers have just been pretty negligent in terms of following up on on safety studies?
2: So how do we know what we know? Uh, At the beginning, first of all, I should say that the hearing that we had got tremendous media attention uh, because in 1990. Breast implants weren't nearly as popular as they are today, but they were seen as this wonderful option for women with breast cancer who underwent mastectomies. So the assumption was that they were very safe and what a great idea and, you know, isn't this wonderful? And so to have a hearing that said, these have never been tested on women. I mean, people were Just shocked. And in 1990, there were only, uh, you know, I think four networks (laughs) on TV. And so uh, ABC, NBC, and CBS all had it on their evening news programs. And this was at a time when millions and millions and millions of people were watching the evening news on those three channels. So it got a tremendous amount of attention, which was also a lot of bad publicity for the breast implant manufacturers, and Dow Corning was the major breast implant manufacturer then, as well as the major manufacturer of silicone, and they realized they had to do something, so they got together money from their marketing budget, not from their research budget, but from their marketing budget, and they started handing out grants to researchers at places like Mayo Clinic and Harvard and other places. And they were giving money to, I think, you know, legitimate researchers, but they were people who knew absolutely nothing about breast implants. And so they got a lot of guidance, it seems, from, um, from Dow Corning on what kinds of studies to do. And those studies were designed... Not to find out whether breast implants were safe, but to prove that breast implants were safe. So they were biased. They were short-term studies. They were women who had implants for very short periods of time. And then they flooded medical journals with these articles about how safe breast implants were. And that's really what hurt us in the sense of learning what the truth was, because You know, it's one thing to say there's no studies. It's another thing to have published studies in New England Journal of Medicine and other major journals saying breast implants were perfectly safe. And so people who were independent researchers were not doing the research, and the only people doing the research were being paid by the company making breast implants, and you can imagine what the result was. Of course, the result was a lot of studies saying breast implants were safe and all the experts assuming that was true and all the women being told, don't worry, breast implants are perfectly safe. We now have lots of studies. At one point, I think hundreds of studies coming out all by people who were funded either by Dow, Corning, or Plastic surgeons, uh, medical societies, or other people with vested interests in proving
1: i mean it 's one thing to say that industry you know Dow Corning and other manufacturers were um, funding these badly designed studies, but why weren't surgeons and why wasn't the FDA uh, highlighting the limitations of these studies and saying, you know, we want to see long-term evidence. We want to see better studies. We, you know, we recognize the limitations of what you're giving us, and it's insufficient to show what we need to show before we put these products inside of
2: women. Well, that's a great question. I think that in terms of the plastic surgeons, Uh, A lot of them really did not want to know. You know, they didn't want to think that the product they had been putting in women was unsafe. They didn't want to know that it was unsafe and they therefore maybe shouldn't do it anymore. So I think the surgeons were happy to believe, and as most doctors would, if there's an article in the New England Journal of Medicine that says breast implants are safe, That means breast implants are safe. Um, In terms of the FDA, it was a different situation. The FDA, because of our congressional hearing and because of the bad press and all the pressure from Congress, um, they did finally require that all breast implant companies that wanted to sell breast implants in this country would have to do clinical trials that were, I think initially they were uh, three years long. And it took three years for those studies to get done, more than three years, because uh, the other part of this was that the implant companies had told FDA, uh, I guess, in conversations prior to our hearing that, of course, they had done clinical trials, but, you know, they didn't want to make them public because of trade secret uh, issues. And it wasn't until FDA finally said, okay, now you need to submit your studies if you want to keep selling your breast implants. And the initial studies that were submitted were, you know, women who had had implants for a month or something. So, you know, it, it then became clear that the studies had never been done. The companies had lied about it. And then the FDA, there was so much pressure. I Uh, And a lot of it from breast cancer patients saying, don't take away my breast implants. This is important to me. And so um, the FDA basically allowed breast implants to stay on the market while they were waiting for these studies to be completed. And a condition of keeping it on the market was that all the women now getting breast implants in the 90s were supposed to be in clinical trials. But... They weren't. I mean, basically what was happening is the women were told, if you want breast implants, you need to sign up for this clinical trial. But don't worry, because as soon as you get the breast implants, you can change your mind and drop out of the study. And that's what most women did. That's just outrageous. So let me, let's go back to the beginning. And let's talk a
1: little bit about what are some of the harms that women are experiencing with
2: their breast implants. Sure. So, the one thing that doctors have agreed um, and that has been publicly acknowledged um, probably not as long ago as 1990, but you know, in the last decade or more, it's been acknowledged that there's a couple of very common complications. One of them is called capsular contracture. That's when the scar tissue that is forming around the breast implant inside the woman's body, this is not outside, but inside the woman's body, that scar tissue can get hard and that can distort the shape of the reconstructed breast or the augmented breast. And it can also be quite painful. So it can look bad, it can feel bad, um, or it can just feel unnatural. It may not feel hard as a rock and painful, but it'll feel unnatural. So that's not something that women want either. So that's the thing that was widely agreed to, but never agreed how often it would happen. So, you know, plastic surgeons might say, you know, this happens to 5% of the women or 10% of the women. But in fact, studies have shown it seems to happen to more than 50% of reconstruction patients.
1: That's just incredible. People who've had breast cancer and are encouraged to get reconstruction, the idea that their implant could then give them a second cancer is just really horrifying. You know, I'm I'm really struck by how often women who've had a mastectomy are encouraged to get implants. And you talked about the ways in which doctors really, um, or manufacturers really want to make an implant that looks and feels as natural as possible. And women are told that their reconstruction will look and feel natural. But the truth is that after a mastectomy, they don't feel anything. And it's just like the most transparent way that women's bodies aren't viewed as our own. And to tell someone who can't feel her chest that reconstruction will look and feel natural makes, you know, the outsider, the person, you know, not inside the body, the subject of that sentence. It's just, it's
2: nuts. We need to understand that The percentage of women with early-stage breast cancer who get mastectomies in the United States is much higher than any other country. And it's partly because of this pressure. Why don't you get a mastectomy? Be on the safe side. You know, get a mastectomy, maybe get a bilateral mastectomy, and then get breast implants and you'll look better than new. That's right. And it'll look and feel natural. And won't that be great? And as you said, it's look and feel natural to the other person, not to the woman herself. I really appreciate you raising this point.
1: Um, As you say, you know, the rates of mastectomies are increasing, um, including this, you know, bilateral mastectomy for an unaffected breast. And I know from you know being with people who are being counseled about their options that there's a lot of pressure for women to you know kind of have their breasts match either by doing surgery to the other breast or sometimes by having a double mastectomy and the kind of implication is it's almost an upgrade, which is absolutely absurd first anyone you know who enjoys their breasts as you know you lose a, a you lose sexual pleasure, you lose sensation and to kind of suggest as is both explicitly and, and sort of implicitly suggested that reconstruction with implants is some kind of upgrade is just, um, I think, really harmful to women's abilities to make informed decisions.
2: Exactly. And, um, you know, as as you said earlier, um, it's a particularly distressing situation where women are having Mastectomies—they don't need. They could have had a lumpectomy, and in fact, research now shows generally women who have who undergo a lumpectomy for early stage can- breast cancer um, live a little longer than women who undergo bilateral mastectomy. But you know, they they think they're doing the cautious thing. They think they're doing the thing that's going to help them live longer, and then. To make that decision that they didn't have to make, doing it thinking that they'll live longer and then finding out that they now have a risk of developing lymphoma in their breast area instead, it's just so terrible. Yeah,
1: it is really terrible.
2: So that can be our segue into the other complications from breast implants. So in addition to numbness and not having any sexual pleasure, from these reconstructed breasts. And in addition to the capsular contracture, and in addition to the fact that eventually these implants will leak and either be replaced or removed, breast implant illness has become the term that tens of thousands of women across the country are saying has been what happened to them when they got breast implants. And some of these women are women who had mastectomies and reconstruction and many of these women are women who were young, healthy women who wanted larger breasts and had breast augmentation surgery. So about three quarters of the women in this country with breast implants are augmentation patients who were healthy, um, and about twenty five percent are women who had breast cancer or in some cases only had DCIS and still ended up with uh, mastectomies and uh, reconstruction. And breast implant illness has a range of symptoms. It is not a medical term. It isn't acknowledged by the medical community. But the typical symptoms that we hear about, and we've talked to thousands of women with these problems typically it 's joint pain it 's fatigue, sometimes chronic fatigue. Uh, it can be fibromyalgia, which is pain all over your body. Their hair can fall out, their eyes can get dry um, their uh, They can get a rash, you know sometimes a terrible rash all over their body. Some women get terrible acne. So there is a wide range of symptoms, but uh, that what it all has in common is that it could be explained as some kind of systemic reaction of the body to this foreign body, the breast implants. And it can be basically affecting the autoimmune system so that the body is... Fighting itself. And so, typical autoimmune diseases that most people have heard of would be lupus, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, MS is also um, an autoimmune disease. So, there's uh, scleroderma, is an autoimmune disease. There are many autoimmune diseases. Usually, what these women have is not, does not fit exactly. It's not exactly lupus. It's not exactly arthritis. It's got symptoms of those diseases, but it's a little different. And it has other symptoms that aren't typical of those diseases. You know, many of these women were in their 20s, and they described being young and healthy and happy, and then they got breast implants, and in some cases, over time, not necessarily right away, they, you know, they couldn't get out of bed. They lost their jobs. They lost their relationships. They couldn't take care of their children. Um, they just couldn't function. And the one thing I didn't mention yet is uh, a cognitive kind of damage that the women refer to as silicone brain fog, where they just can't think clearly. Sometimes they actually lose memory, like they'll be driving home and they can no longer remember how to get home. But more often, it's this sort of confusion and inability to sort of function in that daily way of getting things done. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: that's, uh, it's overwhelming. I mean, this is just an enormous array of harms and um, it is really shocking to think how little We know in terms of the number of women who are impacted, but what can women who are experiencing any of these symptoms do? So let's say someone, you know, is listening to this podcast and this feels all too familiar. Um, You know, she's experiencing what you're talking about. What then?
2: Well, I will say that um, one of the things that our center, the National Center for Health Research, has been doing is we've been... Contacted by over six thousand women who wanted to get their breast implants removed because of, for whatever reason, whether it's because of capsular contracture or leaking implants or uh, breast implant illness symptoms, but who couldn't afford it. You know, so these were women who got their breast implants, but now that they want to get them out, couldn't afford to do that, and. We have a program trying to help women get insurance coverage to get their implants taken out and paid for by the insurance company. And we have studied um, over 400 of these women who were very sick and got their implants taken out. And uh, we have found that the vast majority of them are in much better health after their implants are removed, Um, many of them describe almost miraculous um, recoveries where, you know, they, you know, could barely walk up stairs and now they're, you know, back to jogging or whatever. So, you know, just um, some of the women have some symptoms go away, but not all of them. And some of the women have just about all of their symptoms go away. And sometimes it's gradual and sometimes it's almost immediate. Um, So, in other words, Getting implants taken out can really solve the problem and um and at least in the hundreds of women we've studied, as well as the thousands of women we've talked to other than that, um, we'd say that that works most of the time. it doesn't work all the time, you know it's certainly possible that a woman just happened to develop lupus or lupus-type symptoms um, after getting her breast implants, but she would have gotten it anyway, you know, that's possible. But in our experience, most of the women, you know, get healthier, sometimes a lot healthier. And the other thing is when their implants are removed, they don't get worse. So almost I, I think less than 1% of the women we studied said that that their um, health continued to deteriorate after their implants were removed and everybody else said either it um stayed the same that was only maybe 2 or 3% i think and then everybody else said they got better. Mm-hmm.
1: So when it comes to BIA ALCL, we know that the greatest risk seems to be from textured devices, from textured implants and textured expanders. And, and those allergen products have been recalled with, um, you know, class one FDA recall, which is the most serious recall. There are asymptomatic people who are very concerned about getting these textured implants out, a bunch of whom, you know, want to replace their textured implants with smooth implants. What can you say
2: about how that may or may not mitigate their risks? So we are still at a position, uh, still at a point where we're not sure if allergens, textured breast implants are the only kind that have caused, um, or, or expanders, are the only kind that have caused BIA, ALCL. One of the reasons why we don't know this is because quite a few of the women who have been diagnosed with ALCL, breast implant-associated ALCL, uh, didn't know what brand implants they got, and it wasn't obvious, I guess, when they were taken out, or it wasn't studied when they were taken out. So before we knew to even look at this, uh, you know, before... It was known that maybe the allergen, specifically the allergen biocell textured breast implants, were the most dangerous. Um, You know, women were getting... Uh, treated for ALCL, their implants were... The, the, the first treatment, by the way, is to remove the implants. That's the absolute first treatment. And about half the women, if not more, who have had their uh, implants removed because of ALCL, we have no information about what kind of implants they had to begin with. So we can't say for certain that it's only textured breast implants and we can't say for certain that it's almost always... Allergan biocell textured implants, and especially because even if they know which breast implants they have, they may not know what kind of expanders they had. So we don't know whether uh, smooth implants might also cause ALCL. We just don't know. So the reason why the doctors and the FDA are saying don't get your textured breast implants removed Um, unless you're having symptoms, is because we don't know. Not only don't we know for sure that they're the only kinds of breast implants that are causing the problems, but we also don't even know whether it might be possible that you'd have your implants taken out and you've already started developing this ALCL that will then proceed to develop after your implants are removed. So, So there's a lot of unanswered questions here. There are, and it
1: puts women in a really impossible position. I mean, it's, you know, I I know you understand as well as anyone the stress of, you know, the anxiety that women are living with, knowing that they have a recalled device in their bodies. So what should women who are considering implants be told how, how do we learn from this and make sure that people have the information they need to make informed decisions? You know, one of the things that is unique about breast cancer is the number of choices that women have in their treatment. And I think that's different from many other cancers. And in order to make good decisions that are right for you, everyone needs balanced, unbiased, understandable, evidence-based information. So given the gaps in data around breast implants, given all the things that we don't know, what should we be telling women who are thinking about getting implants for reconstruction?
2: Two things. Let's be sure to let everyone know about the checklist that our working group has created uh, to make sure that all women considering breast implants have information warning them about the possible risks and that they read those read that checklist carefully and and understand that these are real risks that happen to real people and that even if the risk of any one of those things might be low the risk of something is pretty high and um so you know we want to make sure women ask for and see the checklist, and it is uh, available on our website, um, the National Center for Health Research website, uh, which is www.centerforresearch.org. The other one other thing I want to say is when I first started studying what was going on with breast implants almost 30 years ago, um, I thought wow, this is an outrageous thing and they never would have done this for men. You know, that this is only because it's a woman's product and it's breasts and that's, you know, not serious somehow. But actually what I learned, um, and it took me quite a few years to learn this, is that FDA has very low standards for safety uh, of most Implants, most medical implants, including hips and knees, and uh, actually including uh, even some cardiac implants and other things that you would think would be very carefully studied. So, it isn't only uh, the fact that it's a woman's product. Um, In terms of FDA, they they've done a very poor job of requiring evidence of safety for many many implanted medical devices. Yeah.
1: So so let's just quickly talk about the news that FDA has released this draft language on a guidance for breast implants. So I know that we were both pleased to see that the FDA took a step forward in improving the labeling and informed consent processes for breast implants. Uh, Earlier, they released this draft guidance that included both a black box warning and informed consent checklist. However, we both have some concerns. And I know we we had the opportunity to work together as part of a small group of harmed women and plastic surgeons to suggest some language, specific language, of a 10-point checklist to the FDA, um, where do you think the FDA got it right, and what are some of your concerns?
2: It's um, you know I guess I've really gotten hot and cold on the on the FDA's uh, proposal. You know, on the one hand, it was an important step forward. We know that even a few months ago, the FDA's idea of a checklist was something similar to what uh, some of the implant companies already have, which basically says. I understand that there are risks to breast implants and my doctor has explained them all to me and then (laughs) you sign your name. So, you know, not a useful piece of information. So on the one hand, I thought the information about uh, breast implant associated ALCL was quite good. I thought the information about breast implant illness was very weak because instead of saying we now have research showing, you know, that... There, you know, that there is an increased risk of these symptoms for women with breast implants. And if they have their implants removed, there is now evidence that they get healthier. Um, instead of saying that, they made these vague statements about some women say they've had these symptoms and some women say that they feel better when their implants are taken out. And maybe that kind of language is persuasive, to some women, <laughs> but to me, it sounds, you know, like, oh, these are anecdotes, and we don't really take them seriously. You know, I think it's worth saying that in our group that we were working on our um, draft checklist, uh, we were able to come to a compromise with the plastic surgeons in our group to add some quantification, you know, to add some specificity about what this meant. And so it was a little bit weirdly upsetting that what the FDA's language looked like was just looked like what the plastic surgeons were saying, which is some women complain and some women say they feel better. Yes. Yes,
1: just to say this because I think this point is a really good one and I want
2: to make sure that folks understand it.
1: Um so we you and I were part of a small group of around six folks I think who were including two plastic surgeons who proposed some very specific um language which you know I think we were able to get the plastic surgeons to come to our side around the quantification and the specificity and having Done that successfully. We, you know, these are two plastic surgeons that have been in the leadership um, of the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, and so you know, we felt that um, I agree with you that it really was a lost opportunity for the FDA to go backwards and go to this much more generic language that um, doesn't serve women as well.
2: Absolutely, and also is has been the trend at FDA for many years. So we thought they were making a little bit of progress. They have made a little bit of progress. But for many years, the FDA has basically negated the research that showed that women have a, a array of symptoms, Yeah, that there's this tendency for women with breast implants to have this array of symptoms that can be quite serious, and instead of admitting that there is now research confirming that, the FDA is still saying what they have said for decades, which is, you know, we don't know. The the research isn't clear. The the research evidence isn't there, uh, which is just not true anymore.
0: Yeah.
1: So as we close out, um, what can we learn from the experience at FDA of implants? You know, what went wrong and what should
2: we do better? Well, I think there's. this is a a huge question. And in terms of breast implants, women are still in a position where they have to educate themselves. And there is more information available. Um, It's available through Breast Cancer Action. It's available through the National Center for Health Research. It's available through uh, Mm -hmm. Facebook. There's a Facebook page with... I don't know, I think over 80,000 women who say they were harmed by breast implants. And just listening to what these other women say has been very helpful to tens of thousands of women whose plastic surgeons were telling them there's nothing to worry about. So there is more information available than ever before, and it's available through a variety of sources. And women do have to really take it seriously to, you know, I I think there's this tendency to just, you know, trust your doctor and your doctor says, don't worry, and you don't want to worry, so you don't worry. You, You really can't do that with these decisions pertaining to breast cancer treatment or breast implant reconstruction. So there's that, and then there's this bigger issue of you no, know, I don't know how else to say this. Tell your Congressperson and tell your senators in the u s Congress that this is not an acceptable situation to have medical implants, whether they're breast implants or cardiac implants or hip implants. It is not acceptable to have these products on the market without good data showing how long do they last how safe are they and are there certain kinds of patients who are more likely to be harmed than others?
1: Well, thank you, Diana. This is a lot to think about. Um, this is a lot of really great information for our members and for anyone who either has or is considering getting breast implants. I really appreciate you talking
2: with me. Is there anything else that you want to add? Just want to say breast Cancer Action's been a great source of information uh, for women all over the country, and thank you for everything that you do.
1: Aw, thanks, Diana. Thank you so much for helping to share all this important information, Diana and Raylene. Even though we've had a long conversation, it feels like we've only scratched the surface, and I know that people will have more questions, whether about the implants they already have, or because they're considering getting implants. As a feminist organization, Breast Cancer Action works to ensure that everyone is able to make informed decisions about our bodies, free of undue influence and pressures. That means we work to provide balanced information about breast cancer treatment options, including breast implants. We don't take corporate funding from implant manufacturers or plastic surgeons. And we trust that with unbiased information, each person can make the best decision that's right for them because we know that many of the choices that come with a breast cancer diagnosis involve trade-offs. These are difficult, deeply personal decisions, and there is no one clear answer for everyone. Breast Cancer Action has always said we refuse to shame and blame anyone for their breast cancer, and in a culture that second guesses and judges women's decisions about everything from the clothes we wear to our reproductive choices. We also refuse to judge people for getting implants. Instead, we're committed to holding the FDA accountable for ensuring that medical devices are safe and effective. And we're working to make sure that surgeons provide accurate information that doesn't downplay the risks and provide false reassurances. For nearly 30 years, Breast Cancer Action has worked to improve safety standards for breast implants. And together... We can do something besides worry. To find out more, go to Breast Cancer Action's website. And while you're there, you can take action by submitting your public comment to the FDA on their proposed updated guidance on breast implants. You can use our easy online tool on our website. You can also get more information at the National Center for Health Research, including the proposed language that Diana, Raylene, and I worked on with the rest of the working group. You can check out Raylene's website, just call me Ray. Thanks for listening and don't forget to reach out and let us know what issues you want to hear more about on Breast Cancer Action's
0: podcast. Hey, thanks for listening to the Breast Cancer Action podcast. All of our podcasts are available on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Give us a five-star review and be sure to subscribe. We want to hear from you. Tell us your stories. Share your questions. Let us know who you want to hear from and who we should invite as a guest on the show. You can share your ideas by emailing info at bcaction.org or reaching out on Facebook or Twitter. While you're there, sign up for the emails to get the latest on all the rest of Breast Cancer Action's work. And if you value what you heard today, please support our work by donating on our website, bcaction.org because together we can do something besides worry.